There are two kinds of temptations. Number one is a trial. That's a situation designed by God in order to bring you closer to Him. In order to bring you closer to Him. That's a trial. So there may be things that you and I go through, and it's not like the Lord ever throws anything in your path for the purpose of trying to trip you up. That's not the way our God works. And we'll read some scriptures that further illustrate that point. But God doesn't like say, okay, you know, I'm going to really see if I can, you know, mess them up here. I'm going to really throw them a curveball. Now, there may be times in your life that you go through things where the Lord wants to remind you that you're not strong enough on your own and that you need to lean upon him. So there's times that you and I will face trials. And you can see examples of this throughout the word of God. There's times that you and I are going to face trials, but those trials are not meant to destroy us or to even hurt us. Those trials are to force us to lean upon the Lord so that we recognize that his grace is sufficient, that his strength is sufficient. That's a trial. Temptation is a situation designed by Satan in order to draw you away from God. Okay, do you understand the difference? Temptation doesn't come from God. You and I would not tempt our children to do the wrong thing, would we? We wouldn't throw a ball across the street and see if they'll go chase it. I mean, we wouldn't do that. Your Heavenly Father, your, His love for us is even stronger than our love for our children. So you wouldn't do something to try to tempt your child to make a bad decision and to get hurt. Well, God wouldn't either. So temptation is not from God. Now, a trial is, and it's important to know that distinction. But temptation comes from the enemy, and it's got a purpose. It's to try to draw you away from God. Let's read some verses there. It's in your outline. Uh, James chapter 1, verses uh, 2 and 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. That's a little hard to understand right there, doesn't it? Divers' temptation, that's severe temptations. Knowing this, that the trine of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. He, that's, that's where you're saying you're learned to react to temptation correctly, and that is to then lean upon God. And instead of those improper things that we talked about, you say, you know what, I'm going to get closer to God, I'm going to spend more time in prayer, I'm going to spend more time in fasting, I'm going to get closer to God. You know what happens a lot of times when we go through trials? We don't turn to God, we turn to other people. I see this all the time. We're like, I just got to tell somebody. I got to talk to somebody. I got to call somebody. I got to put something on Facebook. I got to let somebody know. I got to You know what all of that is? All of that's meant for you and I to go and spend time with God. But instead of doing that, we do everything except go to God. And I've often wondered why we do that. I think the underlying reason for that is that we don't really believe that God is going to answer this prayer. Because if we really believed that, we would turn to God. But you don't have that, unless you develop that intimacy with God, you will not react that way as, a, as, a, as your first response if you're just reacting in the flesh. You'll react the way flesh reacts. And so you have to back up from that. You say, say no, wait a second, I see this for what it is. And this is what I, think I, I just think is beautiful about being spirit-filled is that God gives you clarity of judgment. You can understand things that don't seem very clear. When you're not serving God, things can really get you off track easily. You don't see it as being the temptation that it is. But when you're serving the Lord and you're trying to walk according to the principles of his word, you've got his spirit inside of you, God will give you clarity of judgment. And you can say, that's a trap. 
you'll know to avoid it. So God is working all the time to identify these different traps. All right, now look at James 1.13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. You see the distinction there? Temptation is not of God, because temptation is designed to try to draw you away from God. Okay? It's important to understand that. In just a minute, we'll talk about the three different ways that temptation uh, comes to all of us. But now let's move down into the next category, which is general facts about temptation. Number one, it is not a sin to be tempted. It is not a sin to be tempted. Now remember what we talked about. What is temptation? It's the opportunity to do that which is contrary to the will of God. But it's important to understand that that is the opportunity. We Go back to what we said originally. Temptation is a suggestion, not a command. So the fact that it's the opportunity to do that which is contrary to God does not mean that you and I are necessarily in sin because we're being tempted. Let's read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So that goes to show you right there. Jesus was tempted. We know that, right? But yet we also know he was without sin. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. Temptations is not sin then, okay? Galatians 5, 16. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, we're going to talk more about this in just a moment. But the number one way to withstand temptation is to not put yourself in an environment where you're being tempted over and over and over now, if you're being tempted over and over and over again, you've got to change your routine or change where you go or who you're with. Or I remember when I was, uh, I was uh, much younger, I was single. I had been evangelizing. I'd come back here, work with my father. This is going back now into the 80s. And uh, I got a job at a radio station up in uh, Cocoa, working at a Christian radio station. And I had the, the early morning. And so I had to get up early in the morning and drive up to Coco, and then be on the air by like 5 a.m. And the great thing was, you know, I was all done by noon, so that was awesome. But getting up at 3 in the morning was not so awesome. And so I got into a really uh, bad habit about going down by the Krispy Kreme donut place and getting me some Krispy Kreme donuts on the way to the radio station. <laughs> and, uh, man, I would bring them, you know, because it was, my flesh was saying, you know, you shouldn't have to get up this early in the morning. So you are, you should reward yourself. You know, the flesh will tell you all these kind of stories. And so get you some Krispy Kremes. It'll help wake you up, give you a little boost in the morning. And it would. I mean, they're loaded with sugar, you know. And uh, so, boy, I got so addicted to those Krispy Kreme donuts. I, every morning, I just couldn't hardly wait to get to the Krispy Kreme donut shop. And uh, I was really addicted. And the reason I knew I was addicted because I'd say, I'm not going to get Krispy Kreme donuts this morning. And I would end up pulling into the parking lot. So I said, Lord, I can't get a row with these Krispy Kreme donuts addictions. You're going to have to help me. So I prayed and asked the Lord to help me to, to get rid of Krispy Kreme donuts. And I mean, while I was praying, I'd still go to the Krispy Kreme donuts. It's unbelievable what addictions will do to you. 
And uh, I still kept going to the Krispy Kreme donut. And I kept thinking, I'm going to have to do something because I'm sitting at this control board, this radio station deal, and I'm eating these donuts and I'm getting to look like the Pillsbury Doughboy. And I'm going to have to do something. So I said, Lord, you know, help me with these Krispy Kreme donuts. Help me. And so I had prayed that for, I don't know, two or three weeks and kept going to the Krispy Kreme donuts while I was praying it. And, uh, and then one morning, I tried to go to the Krispy Kreme donut shop, and they were working on the road out front, and they had blocked the whole road. And I was so upset I couldn't get to the Krispy Kreme donut shop. I thought, that must be the devil trying to keep me from getting my donuts this morning. Here I had prayed for God to help me not get the Krispy Kreme donuts. So I ended up driving around and trying to get back to it, and then I was going to be late for work, and I just said, oh, forget it. I went to work. I was in a bad mood all day long. Somewhere around 10, 11 o'clock, the Lord just dropped in my heart. I thought you asked me to help you with the donuts. And I was like, God, did you put up a roadblock just for me? Oh, my goodness, I can't believe that. The next morning, I wanted to go and see, you know. Oh, the roadblock was still there. The next morning, it's still there. The next morning, still there. I mean, this went on for several weeks. I don't know what they were doing with the road, but they kept it blocked, and I couldn't get through, and blah, blah, blah. So after a while, I, I just started going to work and didn't think much about it because it was always blocked that way. I think it was up there on Wickham. I had to go around and so forth. So anyways, to make a long story short, after a while, the, uh, the road opened up. I drove by it, and I didn't even care anymore because I'd gotten out of the habit. I'd drive by it. Nah, I don't need these Krispy Kreme donuts. I'd drive by, you know, I'd drive by it the next day. And hot sign like that. <laughs> I would drive by it, you know, and I was like, don't wake up that beast. Don't wake up that beast. Don't wake it up. Don't wake it up. I drive by it. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? you can, it's just calling your name. Hot. Hot. And flashes out there, you know, where you can see it. And there's nothing better than hot, crispy. Some of y'all that may be struggling with this, I'm not helping you right now. So after a while, I pulled back in there, got Krispy Kreme donuts, and uh, got back in the habit of doing it again. I got delivered from Krispy Kreme donuts and went right back to it. I got done, and I, I was sitting down at the radio station one day, and I was reading my Bible. I had a Bible talk show called Bible Talk from 1130 to 12, and people would call in. And I'd read, you know, different things and try to relate. People would call, ask questions, so forth. Nobody ever called in. We'd have to get people in the church to call in just to keep the show going. But... Uh, I was reading my Bible one day, and I was reading that, and it said, it was that verse that talks about a dog returning to its vomit. And the Lord said, I delivered you, and you went right back to it. I know this seems like a silly, but the principle applies to all kinds of addictions of the flesh. And uh, so I said, Lord, you did, yeah, I del- and you went right back through it. And I thought, I can't believe I did that. All right, God, I said, I won't do it anymore. I promise. I got weak. I shouldn't have done it. I thought it was a small deal. You know, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs, I don't drink alcohol, I don't dip snuff. I thought at least Krispy Kremes would be okay. My God, we got to do something. I thought Krispy Kreme would be all right. So I said, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. That's another thing the enemy always does. He always makes you think it's not that big of a deal. It never stops, it keeps growing, you know. And um, so I said, I won't go anymore. The next day, I went right back to it. I went right back to it the next day. And I was driving to work and I had that thing there. And that thing, I was like, man, I felt guilty as soon as I pulled out of the parking lot. A bag of donuts was sitting right there. Not just one. I mean, I'd get a bag of them. 
I was like, I can't believe I did this. And so this went on for a couple days, and finally, you know what I had to do? I finally had to change the route that I took going to the radio station. I would have to go a route that would take me 10 minutes longer just to make sure I did not go by the Krispy Kreme. You know what that means? That means that sometimes you and I have to change our daily patterns to make sure we're not going to be tempted. Because here's one thing I've learned about temptation. If you can win the small battles, you can win the war. But a lot of times we, we give in to the little battles and then the war is something that we're not strong enough to withstand because temptation builds momentum. So you have to win it way back here when it's a little tiny temptation and it doesn't look like much. And I changed my route. And you know to this day I will not eat a Krispy Kreme donut. If we go over there and y'all line Krispy Kreme donuts up all up and down that table over there where we eat, when we have our family fun nights on there, you'll watch me. I'll walk around it. You'll hardly ever see me. I don't know how many, I don't know how many years have gone by I haven't eaten a Krispy Kreme donut. Do you know why? Because I'm afraid to wake up the Krispy Kreme monster inside of me. <laughs> now, I got other issues like, you know, with Arby's and French fries and five guys, a whole bunch of other stuff. But the point is, sometimes in dealing with temptation, you've got to change your patterns. If something is causing you to be tempted, change the route, change what you look at, change where you go, change how you drive, change your friends, change your location. Do something so that you don't constantly put yourself in a position where you're being tempted over and over and over again of the same thing. That's just some practical advice. Now, let's read a little bit further here. One of the things that we do know when we're looking at general facts about temptation is that you and I will never outgrow temptation. You are never going to be so spiritual that you're not tempted. Not until you get a heavenly body. And once you get a heavenly body, you're good to go. While you're dealing with this flesh, <laughs> you are not ever. People say, well, I've been in church for 40 years. I ought not to be tempted. You're still going to be tempted. Because you're dealing with flesh. And so you're not ever going to outgrow temptation. That's really important. And also remember this about remember this about temptation. God doesn't ever deliver you from temptation. He makes a way of escape. But you have to be the one to take that. I had to be the one to change my route. He doesn't ever just deliver you from it without giving you an opportunity, a way of escape. But then still you and I have to make the choice to take the way of escape as opposed to the temptation. That usually is something that is being generated by a craving in our flesh. So it's important to know we're not ever going to outgrow it, okay? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also Make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Folks, we're going to be dealing with our flesh until the Lord comes. But there's always going to be a way of escape. He's not going to put you in a situation where it's so strong, it's more than you're able to bear. And sometimes I know we think, God, I appreciate you having so much confidence in me, but I'm pretty sure I'm at the breaking point. I can't bear anymore. The Lord won't put more on us than we're able to bear. But he'll make a way of of escape. And when he does, you and I got to be looking for it and we got to be willing to take that, even though it may not be something that our flesh wants to do. Okay? So what do we know from these verses? Number one, temptation will come. 
We know temptation is going to come. It says that in the verse. We also know that temptations are the same to everyone. We're going to talk about why that is. Temptations are the same. You see what that verse says, but such as is common to man. Temptation is the same for everybody. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Now, yes, the enemy will custom make a temptation for you, but the temptation is always going to be in one of three categories. Lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, pride of life. Those are the three areas that the enemy always tries to tempt us in. Started in the Garden of Eden. Lust of the eye, looked at the apple, saw that it was good. Lust of the flesh, tasted good. Pride of life, if you eat this, you'll be as wise as God is. The pride of life, I deserve this. I'm getting up early in the morning. I deserve a bag of Krispy Kreme donuts. The pride of life, you've been working hard. You deserve a drink or whatever. There's always that pride of life that gets in us that causes us to fall victim to these little snares and traps. But all temptation will fit into one of those three categories. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Lust of the eye is something we see. We see it, we want it. That's why you got to be careful, guard what your eyes are looking at. The more you look at something, the more you want it. doesn't matter what it is. It's just humanity. So your eyes have to be, you know, they have to have gates. you got to guard your eyes. David said, I will set nothing evil before my eyes. We live in a society that is eye-hungry. That's why massive screens. I mean, you see, we have these big screens here. Why do we have these big screens here to communicate a spiritual message? Because our culture has, begotten so, has gotten so used to having things, not just a little small demonstration of a visual, you know, uh, reinforcement, but it's massive. Bigger TVs, bigger IMAX. Everything's bigger, bigger. It's visual. We live in a very visual world. You know, phones and, and, I mean, now they even have, have you guys seen where you go and pump your gas and they got a little video going for you while you're pumping the gas? I mean, you can't stand there for two minutes without a video playing? Somebody figured out, hey, we got a captive audience. Let's, you know, let's push, you know, the two liter Diet Cokes are on sale while they're standing there. So they'll play like a little, you know, and you're like, I do it, you do it, we all do it. We got nothing else to do, we're pumping gas. You know, then you go and get in your car and there's another screen there. I mean, it's no matter where you go. We're living a very visual world. So what happens as a result of that culture that we're in is that it's easy for our eyes to take in. And your eyes are the gateway to your soul. Everything that you take in, it take, comes in and then it creates memories and images. And it takes snapshots of everything, stores it in this computer. This brain is still the, the most incredible computer that this world knows because it was created by God. All the other computers are created by man. But the one God created is still the most powerful, the human brain. And it records everything. And so your eyes is what allows it. So you have to guard your eyes. The lust of the flesh is what we bring in. Remember I told you before, we have that craving for significance and security and all that. So there's times that we have these emotional gaps in our life. And, and our flesh craves something. And we don't always know why. It's because we're trying to fill those different voids that, that Jesus wants to fill. And then, of course, the pride of life, we know what that is. So those three things, it's going to be the same for everybody. All right, let's move to the next point. God sees every temptation we go through. God sees every temptation. You see that? There hath no temptation taking but such as common to God, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able 
but will with the temptation also make a way of escape. That means that God will help me if I trust him. God will help me if I trust him. He sees every temptation. It's common. He was tempted. You and I are tempted. It's something that each and every one of us are going to face. All right, let's flip over. Um, in my outline, it's on the second page, but if yours, it's on the same. Let's go to where it says the three sources of temptation. The three sources of temptation. There are three things that create temptation. And the first one is my own flesh. And let me just say this. That is the most difficult of all three areas, is your own flesh. Because the other two are external, but your flesh, you can't really divorce yourself from your own flesh. I mean, we got what we got here, we got to work with it, you know? Our own flesh gives us temptation, and we don't understand it a lot of times, but that's sometimes the most difficult of, of temptation for us to deal with. The other one is the world, and the third is the devil. I know churches don't even like to use the word devil anymore, but I'm going to keep using it. It's in the Bible. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have an enemy that's trying to destroy us. James 1, uh, 13 through 15. Let's read these in your outline. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That's the flesh. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. The initial lust is just our flesh. When the lust hath conceived, you understand how conception works. We're all adults in here, right? Two things coming together. When lust hath conceived, when our own flesh now unites with a worldly philosophy, a, a philosophy, a secular mentality, when our own flesh meets with that, the lust conceives, takes on a life of its own. This is the process that temptation goes for every single human being, okay? So when lust hath conceived, it's now not just the flesh, the world, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, this is the enemy, bringeth forth death. Because ultimately, the devil is in the business of destroying you. That's the bottom line. He wants to destroy your body because your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, the Bible says. So all of the things that people do, you will even see it. They, I, don't, I don't understand how people do all the things they do, but it's, it's part of the culture that we're in. It's a lot of things are very damaging and hurtful and to the flesh. And you wonder why people do that. They don't, I don't even think people always understand why they're doing it. But it's all to try to bring about destruction of the flesh and ultimately the soul. So that's the process. It starts with our flesh and then it moves to the world, which is that conception, and then it's sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. So what is exactly lust? Because I think for us to understand this, we have to understand where do we go. We understand that temptation in and of itself is not a sin, right? We established that. But when temptation conceives and bringeth forth lust, now we've moved into the category of sin. 
So let's talk about this because here's what I believe. Yes, we're going to be tempted. No, we don't have to lust. And if we can win the battle between temptation and lust, then it never has to move into sin. Does that make sense? So you want to win the battle over here between temptation and lust. If you can win the battle in that domain, then it's much easier to win it there than it is over here. See, the longer, the longer this thing goes down the, the uh, assembly line, the more difficult it gets to deal with. And a lot of times people don't realize they have an issue until it's way over here. But if you can deal with it when it's over here, it's much easier to conquer. Does that make sense? If you need an example in like a strategic war, if you're fighting an opponent, I was reading, uh, I was reading some stuff recently about this. Uh, I saw that there was this new movie about Dunkirk coming out. And uh, it made me interested in that battle. And I went back and started studying all about that, that battle that took place in uh, France where uh, the Germans had, in World War II, they had cut off and they had cut off the ability of the, the British and the, uh, the Belgians and the French to all connect together and they got stranded. And uh, it, was, it, was even a, it was even a point in time where England was considering surrendering to Germany because they had 300,000 British soldiers that were trapped. And inexplicably, maybe, maybe it was the Lord that did this, but inexplicably Hitler stopped them. He could have wiped them out right there. They couldn't go anywhere. The sea was behind them. They couldn't go forward. The panzer divisions of the German, German army had them trapped. And uh, they had just outmaneuvered and outfoxed them, and they had them split up. But inexplicably, the, uh, the Germans, they stopped for three days to regroup. And because they stopped for three days, the um, British forces and the French forces, the French were ferocious fighters during this battle. They, it, it's an amazing story when you go back through it. But um, they were able to establish, as it were, a beachhead. And they were able to stop the advancement and they were able to work an evacuation. They evacuated out through the English Channel. Just literally hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And, uh, and they were, of course, being shot at and all that as they were going out in the water getting on ships. But the very fact that the Germans, later on, when it was obvious that Germany was going to have to surrender, Hitler said, you know, Churchill... He said this to some of his aides. He said, you know, Churchill never realized what a good sport I was when I allowed him to escape at Dunkirk. As if, you know, he should appreciate that I let him go when I didn't have to. Well, I don't ever believe Hitler did anything that was just being sportingly kind. Hitler thought he had him down so bad that he could give him three days to regroup and probably destroy him even more. Because he was getting his, his own armies together but by giving them time they were able to retreat reorganize and then of course America got involved in it and the surge started happening and we eventually won World War II and I thought about that when I thought about temptation I thought about the battles when they had the British up against the backs up against the English Channel that was kind of this area of the war they had them down they didn't finish them off. They waited three days, and the three days was enough for them to eventually 
be saved. And I got to thinking, you know what, folks? If you and I, and something's at the very beginning, before we allow it to metastasize and become something that's so difficult to deal with, if we can destroy it right here before it grows any bigger, we can win the battle. I said we can win the battle. And this is why we call it the war within, because the battle is oftentimes with our own flesh. All right? So let's talk about this. Lust is an unrighteous way to fulfill a natural desire. Lust is an unrighteous way to fulfill a natural desire. This is why lust is not easy, because it has to do with a natural desire. Now, we know there's a lot of unnatural desires out there, and we as Christians understand that. But the reason that every human fights this is because every human has natural desires. But lust is an unrighteous way. What you and I have to find is how to fulfill lust righteously and not unrighteously. And I wouldn't even use the word lust in terms of a righteous fulfillment. I would use that more of a craving. Because I think once it gets over into the area of lust, it has already moved into an unrighteous way of fulfilling it. All right? Let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, remember I told you those were the three areas that we're all tempted in, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. So all of it's temporary, folks. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now that lets us know right there, all those things. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. One of the things that's so difficult for us to win this war within is because we are natural beings and spiritual beings. You have, a, you have a natural flesh, you have a human body, and yet you're also filled with the Spirit of God. So the flesh is always, I used to tell young people this, I used to say, you know, it's like feeding two bulldogs. You've got the flesh and you've got the spirit. Whichever bulldog you feed the most is going to win. If you feed the flesh the most, if you watch the wrong stuff and listen to the wrong stuff and go to the wrong places, that bulldog's going to win. But if you feed the spirit the most by having a prayer life, being faithful to church, obeying the word of God, that spirit is going to win. And you're going to make the right decisions. And then when lust tries to come in, the spirit is directing you you immediately identify it and you extinguish it before it gets traction in your life. So whichever one you feed the most. So our daily habits were feeding one of those bulldogs more than the other. And if we feed that, that carnal bulldog all the time, that thing's going to grow and become stronger and stronger. And the poor little spiritual bulldog over here is like malnutrition. And he's just over here shaking on three legs because we don't ever feed the spirit. How do we do that? By having holy habits in our life. Coming to church on Wednesday night, talking about these things. 
being able to put ourselves in a spiritual environment. And you know what? This is something I believe is so important. Whenever you feel, not whenever something's already metastasized into lust, but when you feel a temptation at the very beginning, you ought to stop right there and pray and say, God, I know that's not of you, and give me the strength to eliminate that in my mind right now. And then move on. Don't think all the time about, I wonder if I've got enough strength to deal with that. Because the enemy wants to try to keep the temptation in front of you all the time, so you're thinking about it all the time. Well, if you're thinking about it all the time, what's it doing? It's marinating in your mind and in your heart. You've got to pray at that time and say, God, help me. And then you've got to move on. If I'm at the radio station thinking about Krispy Kreme donuts all day long, guess what? Even if I didn't get them in the morning, I'm going to go hunting for them on the way home. Because I'm thinking about it all day long. So you don't want to spend your mind just always dwelling on the temptation. Lord, I thank you for delivering me for that. Now I'm going to go on and I'm going to play some worship music in my car. And I'm going to say, God, you are great and greatly to be praised. And I'm going to go ahead and use the voice of faith and say, Lord, I thank you for delivering me from that. I feel the victory. You have helped me, God. And I give you glory and honor for it. You may not even feel delivered yet. But if you'll start thinking delivered, speaking delivered, that thing will just... It'll just die off on the vine and not have any impact on your life. If we can catch it at the very beginning, okay? Does that make sense? All right, I got to hurry. The devil's purpose in temptation, and this is important for you to get, the devil's purpose in temptation is to hurt God. That's his purpose. That's why he wanted to destroy Job, because he knew how much God loved him. The devil can't hurt God. But he's still mad about getting thrown out of heaven. So guess how he hurts God? By trying to mess up those that he loves. You ever had people try to hurt you by messing with your kids? They can't hurt you, so they're going to try to hurt your kid. Let me tell you what, that's an evil spirit, by the way. That's what the devil tries to do. He tries to hurt God by hurting his children. How's he going to hurt you? By trying to get you to go down that path of temptation. Why does God allow temptation? Well, first of all, the necessity of choice. God allows temptation because there are certain laws that God establishes and even he himself will not violate those laws. One of them is he's given everybody free will. He could have made us all like robots. We all just marched to church on Sunday. We all just marched to church. We all just marched to prayer. He could have made us all robots. We didn't have a choice. He created us. He could have made us like he wanted to. We don't love God. Didn't even know why we love God. Didn't even have a choice not to love God if he wanted to. But he gave us all a free choice, right? Well, when he gave us free will, he knew by giving us free will, he was giving us the opportunity to make wrong choices and decisions. And that happened immediately in the Garden of Eden. But that was part of his love for us, was giving us a choice. You know, you've heard the saying, if you love the bird, you turn it loose, and if it's yours, it'll come back, blah, blah, blah. If it doesn't, it never was yours. Well, the fact that he gave us free choice was his way of saying that I love you. Now, the way we show that we love him is by making the right choices. So, free will and the right to choose was an integral part of this relationship being a love relationship, your relationship with God. Being a love relationship, not a obligation relationship. Does that make sense? Nobody makes us come to church. We come to church because we love God. We want to be in his house. We want to be with his people. We want to be in his presence. 
you know, they're, they're, that choice was very important. Well, because of that choice, then he has to allow you and I to be able to be tempted and make the right decisions by preserving our right to choose. Does that make sense? Here's what temptation shows us. It shows us what we are. It shows us where we stand. And it shows us where we're going in the future if we don't change. Temptation, ladies and gentlemen, is a road map. It tells you where you are, where you stand, and where you're going. Because ultimately, if temptation is not dealt with, it will, con it will continue on that path. It doesn't just lay dormant. It's either moving forward in your life or it's moving out of your life. But it never just stays and lay dormant. It's either moving forward or backward. Let me close with this. I want to call your attention to 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. I want to read these verses as we close today because there's this great story in the Bible about David who was a king, loved God, had a great relationship with God. We'd have to say he had an intimate relationship with God. But the Bible said when kings went to battle, David stayed home. He got too much idle time. And he sent Joab and all the gang out there to fight. And he stayed at home and he's walking around on top of his roof and he's looking at all this kingdom. He's powerful, he's rich, and he's in favor with God. And as he's looking around, you know the story. He sees Bathsheba taking a bath, beautiful lady. And tempted, turns into lust. Immediately he calls for Bathsheba to come. Back then, you know, you didn't like say, I don't want to go see the king. If you didn't go see the king, you know, they'd take your head off. So she goes to, to the, see the king. They end up having an affair. Uriah, her husband, is one of the men on the battlefield. And so, you know, whatever, I don't know what happens after that. I don't know if she goes home or what. But at some point, they realize that there's a child coming. And, um, and so now David knows that he's in trouble. So he tries to cover his sin. This is also what human nature tries to do. And so he brings Uriah. And he said, here's his strategy. He's going to bring Uriah home from the battle. And he's going to have Uriah go stay at home, be with his wife, have relations with his wife. And then when the baby's born, they can say that it's there. He's got all this strategy. You know, it's amazing how humanity always thinks they can outsmart biblical principles, godly principles. I used to tell people, if the president of the United States, with the secret service and all that's at their disposal, if even he gets caught, what chance do you and I have? Your sins will find you out. I don't care how smart you are, how much money you got, your sins are going to find you out. And they did David. Because when Uriah came home, he was such an honorable man. He came home and said, oh, I want you to come home. He says, no, I'll just stay here with the king. And he goes, no, and he tries to get him drunk. I mean, three times he tried to get him to go to his wife. And he wouldn't do it. He said, my men are on the battlefield. They're sleeping out. There. I can't go to my home. I'll stay. He sleeps out on the, on, the, on the whatever, out in front of the door of the castle or the palace. And, and David is so upset. He brings him back in, has another big party, tries to get him drunk again, tries to get him to go back. Anyhow, to make a long story short, Uriah goes back on the battlefield. And when he goes back on the battlefield, David sends a note. This is how much he trusts. This is what a man of character Uriah was. Uriah carries his own death sentence back in a letter that David has given Uriah to carry to Joab, the head general. 
He says, give this to Joab when you see him on the battlefield. And it's had the king's seal on it. So obviously they would know if it was open. But he still trusts him enough to carry his own death sentence. Because when Joab opens it up, he says, this is from the king. Joab opens it up. The next surge on the wall put Uriah in the front of the soldiers. So the next time they go, the most dangerous place, obviously, in the front, Uriah dies in battle. And it looks like David has covered his sin, except that God sees everything. God's got a prophet in the land by the, by the name of Nathan. Nathan comes before the king, David. David, I want to see you. He comes before David and tells David this story. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, who came unto him and said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup, lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. You know how people can get pets and get so close to them? Now, this has been going on for a long time. This was a lamb, like one of the kids living in the house. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was coming to him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was coming to him. The rich guy's got company coming. He's wants to kill something to feed the company. He's got herds and herds of animals. And... No, he goes over and takes that the little poor guy who's got one little lamb living in his house, like his daughter, like one of the kids, he goes and takes that lamb. He's telling this story. Took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And then it goes on and on and on. And it's unbelievable at that point. God's saying, David, I loved you so much. I gave you everything. And you know how the Lord loved David so much? He even says this when you read this account. It'll make you cry. The Lord says, and if it hadn't have been enough, I would have given you more. But you took something that didn't belong to you. Now, here's the question that I have for you today. It's simply this. In what we have been talking about, what is the traveler? Remember in the story, they said that the traveler came to visit? What is the traveler? Does anybody know? That's temptation. See, temptation comes to visit. The traveler came to visit. That's temptation. But when the traveler came, he didn't get rid of the traveler. He kept the traveler. He allowed the traveler to come into his house. He allowed the traveler to spend the night. And that's where Temptation conceives and turns into lust and sin and all that happens. David could have, David was tempted. You know what he should have done? 
He should have climbed down from off the top of his house and should have said, you know what? I should be in battle with my men. And he should have got all of his soldiers together in his chariot and headed off to battle. But instead, he allowed the trap or temptation to live in and amongst his thoughts, his plans, his dreams, his cravings. And a man died and everything that happened that took place from that, their baby ended up dying. Folks, let me tell you something. Sin never, ever gives you a better result. If you don't remember anything else tonight, sin never gives you a better result. To David's credit, when Nathan confronted him with that bony little finger and said, Thou art the man, David said, I have sinned. And he got down on his knees and he repented, even though he was king and he could have had Nathan's head cut off for giving him those news, that news. He said, I have sinned. And when you read Psalms 51, he says, wash me as white as snow. Created me a clean heart and a right mind. And he goes through this prayer and he pours out his heart to God. And guess what the Lord does? He restores David. Yes, there were natural consequences to his sin that traveled on even into his children and his grandchildren. But God restored David because of his repentance. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what God wants to do for every one of us. We're all going to be tempted, but it doesn't have to be sin. It doesn't have to turn into it. And if it does, we can find our way back. Aren't you thankful for the love of God? I went a few minutes over. Let's stand together tonight. Why don't we just lift our hands and thank the Lord? Lord, I thank you for restoration. I thank you that you're not only a God of prevention. You're not only a God that tries to keep us from making the wrong decisions. But Lord, if we do, you have made a way of escape. You've allowed us, God, to come back before you, before that throne room of grace, and to find help in a time of need. Lord, as we go through this study together, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to strengthen us. Equip us with the right tools, Lord, that we can win this war within and bring honor and glory to you in all of our actions and all of our thoughts. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen.